1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Daniel Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with F. Brett Cox, author of Roger Zelazny, published in 2021 by the University of Illinois Press as part of their Modern Masters of Science Fiction series. Welcome, Brett. Well, hi. Thanks so much for uh, asking me to do this. I'm looking forward to it. So am I. Great. So, thanks for coming on the show. And before we dive into your book, which I'm very eager to do because it was a terrific, terrific read, I'd like to know. Can you just tell the listeners a little about yourself?
2: Um, sure. Um, I am a uh, my my official title these days is Dana, Professor of English at Norwich University, uh, which is in Northfield, Vermont. I am um, a transplanted Southerner. I was born and raised in North Carolina and uh have been at Norwich for about 20 years now. And I uh of course wrote the book on uh Zelazny. I also write fiction and my I had a short story collection called The End of All Our Exploring Stories. Um you, you know, guess uh spot the English teacher who's writing um who's writing fiction. And uh that was published in 2018 by Fairwood Press. And I also, uh, a number of years before that, co-edited with um, Andy Duncan an anthology called Crossroads Tales of the Southern Literary Fantastic, and that was published by Tor Books in 2004. And I live in Vermont with my wife, Jeannie Beckwith, who is a uh, retired uh, faculty at Norwich and uh, still very active as a... um, playwright and director. So she's, um, and I occasionally get pressed into theater service, but that's, that's another topic.
1: That's a, I'm sure it's a labor of love. So this is a terrific book of yours about the life and works of a writer whose works I've always enjoyed. Obviously you have, but, but whose, whose works may not be as known as those of some of the, the, the quote unquote heavy hitters like Frank Herbert or Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury, you know, the usual suspects. So can you begin today by telling our listeners about Roger Zelazny's career, some of the highlights, some of his most well-known works?
2: Sure. Uh, well, Zelazny is – well, obviously, I think he's a very interesting figure because I wrote the book uh, on him. But uh, Zelazny, um, when I it was – an American science fiction writer of the late twentieth century, and he was very closely associated with what was called the new wave movement in science fiction in the nineteen sixties um he uh his direct peers would be people well, the probably the closest connection would be Samuel R Delaney who uh, was a a direct peer of of, um, Zelazny's and to this day remains probably the staunchest advocate we have for Zelazny's work. Um, You know, so uh, Samuel R. Delaney, Harlan Ellison, uh, Norman Spinrad, and all the British writers like uh, J.G. Ballard and uh, Brian Oldis. But uh, what was interesting about Zelazny is that he had a very... Um, strong sort of general literary background. He had a master's degree in comparative literature from Columbia, and he was uh, an almost frighteningly well-read individual and just really knew the canon of world literature uh, as well as anybody. But he equally well knew the traditions of genre science fiction and fantasy that he read as a kid and grew up loving. And he was even active in, um, you know, science fiction fandom for a while in the uh, 1950s. He wanted to be a poet. In fact, I don't. I shouldn't say he wanted to be a poet. He was a poet. He published a lot of poetry in his lifetime. Uh, and in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, he was concentrating on writing poetry. He submitted a book manuscript to the Yale Younger Poets Prize, I believe that was, and he didn't win, and that sort of sent him back uh, to writing fiction. And he published his first story in uh, 19—his first— science fiction story in 1962 and was very much in literary terms an overnight success. Uh, He published a lot of stories very quickly. And then in 1963, he published a a uh, novelette, which uh, the term novelette is kind of left over from pulp uh, tables of contents, just a, a long, a longer short story uh, called "A Rose for Ecclesiastes" that um, was a finalist for the Hugo Award. And from nineteen, and then he just really had this remarkable explosion of publications. And in the uh, he, uh, by the time he was in his early 30s which was at the end of the 1960s um and i'm referring to um uh, uh, some notes here he had uh one of the the two main awards in science fiction at that time and still are really two of the main awards of the hugo award uh, given by the World Science Fiction Convention and the Nebula Award, given by the Science, what was then the Science Fiction Writers of America is now the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association, and he won the Hugo twice and the Nebula twice and was nominated a bunch of times. Just had this extraordinary impact on the field, and then his career took a some so would argue a somewhat different turn. And uh, beginning really with the publication of the first book in the Amber series, Nine Princes in Amber, uh, he well he became a full time writer. Uh, he was working for the Social Security Administration in Baltimore. He's a native of the Cleveland. He was born and raised in Euclid, Ohio. He's a Cleveland kid, and he uh, got this job at Social Security in. Um, Uh, Baltimore, and then he quit to become a full-time writer when things started going well, and he spent the rest of his career as a full-time writer, and a lot of the discussion about Zelazny and his career is this sort of musing, regretfulness, arguing about the degree to which the commercial imperatives of being a full-time writer sent him in a different direction with his writing. And there was historically a school of thought that his great work was all of that stuff in the 60s, and that nothing he did after that quite measured up. And that's something I try to interrogate in the book although uh, I've seen a couple of reviews have come out that have suggested maybe I didn't interrogate it as much as I thought I did. But, um, but you know, the um, uh, but that was there. And, of course, one of the things I try to say in my book is that he made very conscious decisions about his career, and he did do a lot of work that was more perhaps, uh, you know, had a strong commercial intent, but he was always interested in doing innovative things and throughout the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s there where he he never stopped doing work that was ambitious was innovative but it just was in the context of doing a lot of other things too that were more straightforward and more commercially oriented and of course the the sad fact is that he died Young, he uh, died in. Um, uh, I guess maybe since in some ways I've always kind of blocked out the uh, exact year. He he um, he, he died in night uh, in June 1995, and he was only 58, and he died of um, colorectal cancer. And it was just a real shock to the field. And in terms of how Slazny is positioned with some of these other writers I've mentioned, the fact is that people like Samuel R. Delaney, certainly like J.G. Ballard, and um, and of course other writers like Ursula Le Guin, like Joanna Russ, like Harlan Ellison, um, became known outside of the field in various ways and for doing different things. And Zelazny, even though he is so often cited as a writer of quote-unquote literary science fiction, just is not known outside the field in the way that somebody like Chip Delaney is, or certainly not like uh, someone like Ursula Le Guin is so it's it's a very one of the things that drew me to the project is this issue of literary reputation and the arc of an author's career and what we make of uh, of the authors after that i will say that he he um He was very much also, I I hesitate to use the term writer's writer because that implies somebody who is not widely popular or widely read. And that simply was not true with Zelazny. I mean, um, you know, as I say in the book, at the height of his fame, with the Amber series, you know he had to be kind of careful. Not, you know, he was being mobbed at science fiction conventions. I mean, he was a very popular writer, but other writers were just knocked out by his work too. And two of his biggest fans among later generations of writers and strongest um, acolytes are uh, Neil Gaiman and George R. R. Martin. And anybody who's read Game of the Game of Thrones books. Uh, and has read any of the Amber books, can see the connections there. And these are connections that Martin has publicly um, and generously acknowledged.
1: Yeah. That's one thing I really liked about your book is you said about his rep it's 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 as much the story of his reputation and his reception over time as it is about, you know, Zelazny the man. And in that that the beginning of your answer when you talked about his, you know, this to use a cliche, I'm sorry, this meteor this meteoric rise to fame so quickly. I mean, it's funny that he got his second Hugo for for Lord of Light and Lord of Light, you know, seems like you know it, it has all the erudition, like you mentioned, with his his you know knowledge of, of you know um, Hinduism and and com- comparative literature and things like that. It reminded me very much of when you were just talking of the story of Orson Welles. You know, you, it's hard to read this and not have for some people think, well, Lord of Light was his Citizen Kane, and he did think mm-hmm. interesting things afterwards. But it was yeah. hard for him to get back mm-hmm. to that. You know?
2: Yeah. Well, I would. Uh, that's an intro. That I think that there's um, something to be said for that comparison in the sense of somebody who was uh that was doing significant art at a very young age I mean it is scary to think of how young Orson Welles was it's scary to think of how young uh Francis Ford Coppola was when he made the Godfather it's scary to think of how young Kubrick was uh you know all of that but um the um i would say the difference there is that lord of light is a very interesting book because it, it of course it really you know helps solidifies reputation but there are to this day people who don't admire that book as much as maybe they like some of Zelazny's other work or maybe that it just didn't speak to them uh, in quite the same way it's a very it's a challenging book i mean that's one thing i talk about in my coverage of it is that you got to really you, you know sell out to that book and be willing to be led in in very specific uh, directions and also be willing to go with the flow of a very specific use of language
1: yes yes absolutely so let's let's talk about him as as a as a person for for a couple of moments um how did that to what degree if at any like how did that rise to to stardom and that quick that quick um you know uh you know rise to fame affect him as a person well
2: um i i'm pausing here because um I think the core thing about Zelazny as a person that I found through my own, through my research, and I should say that this is—I've always thought of this book. It is not a detailed biography. It is a career survey, a career serve a career survey that is strongly biographically based, and um, I think that. Um, and the one thing that, that actually made my job a lot easier and more pleasant was that I could not find one person who had a bad word to say about Roger Zelazny as a person, as an individual. Uh, he, um, from everything I could say, and I actually, uh, I, I maybe save this for, for later in the conversation, but I actually did meet Zelazny as a teenage science fiction Really? Fan. T- tell the yes. story. Oh, oh, okay. Tell well, the story. That's a great... All right. Um, I... Um, the first science fiction... I was active in uh, the science fiction fan community in the 1970s, which is the era of mimeograph fanzines and Friends Through the Hard Copy Mail... And the first science fiction convention I ever attended was the 1974 World Science Fiction Convention in Washington, D.C. And I was very young, and I was able to attend. my parents kind of signed off on the trip because my older brother uh, took me and it was a it was a a, a doable drive from southeastern north carolina up to washington dc and my brother chip took me because roger Zelazny was the guest of honor all right my older brother was my gateway into reading science fiction and he just was a stone Zelazny fan and really just loved the books just bowed down to lord of light all of that so i said chip Roger Zelazny is going to be the guest. Oh, okay, fine. You know, we'll go to that. And so, I actually did meet him at some, I think, meet the authors thing or a guest of honor reception. And I remember I spoke with him, and I'd have no memory of what was said. Uh, he was a very affable uh, person. That's all I remember. Uh, because I, I just suck so bad when it comes to things like this. I also met James Baldwin when I was in graduate school and I don't remember what he said to me either. Uh but um the uh but everybody I talk to retroactively are alright, doing research for book, because there are still plenty of people around who knew Zelazny, who were friends with him who um were uh b- b- whom he mentored people like george r, r. martin and every, nobody had a bad word to say about him um the most I ever heard was that he as and I think this may be an answer to your question that i've i've gotten away from here is that there was a consistent uh sense of of him being somebody who was a Uh, just absolutely kind and gracious and affable and, you know, good with, you know, being with people, you know, unlike many a literary figure. Um, Yeah. And so, um, but he kind of kept himself to himself. There was all, you know, sometimes there was a sense of a little bit of, you know, that he's keeping uh, a little bit of distance there. Um, I think that uh, one telling example of that is that he um, he was involved when he was in Baltimore. There was an inform there was a writers group in a workshop, uh, and it it's too complicated to go into why it was called this. It was called it was called the Guilford Guilford Gaffia. This is a pun on an originary science fiction writers workshop called the Milford Mafia that was in Milford uh, Pennsylvania. And that was started by David Knight and Kate Wilhelm back in the 1950s. And this group in Baltimore had a number of writers, well, Joe Haldeman, uh, Jack Dan, George Alec Effinger, people who went on to be very prominent in the field. And Zelazny so was kind of the elder statesman of this group, but he never participated in the workshops. He would show up for the party at the end and sort of sit around and visit with people. And they were like, oh, I am spending Saturday night, you know, hanging out with Roger Slasney. This is great. Uh, So, you know, and he, and he also, um, I I think, so I think that controlling, I think he controlled his own narrative very well and very carefully. And I'm just kind of formulating that now talking to you. I didn't really use that phrase in the book, but I think that he kept his private life private, um, in sharp. And I do discuss this in the book in sharp contrast to people like Chip Delaney or Harlan Ellison. He very seldom did any kind of memoir writing or non personal nonfiction writing. Um, uh, his, uh, he just and he lived very quietly he lived in baltimore with his wife and his kids then they moved to santa fe and he spent the rest of his life there and um and the only he did uh get divorced uh actually not too long or not uh or separated from his wife not too long before he died and had another relationship at, at the end of his life but um you know i think that i i think that he kind of uh kept it um kept it under control uh and he was not immune to the kind of anxieties that all writers are prey to you know i mean what's more especially once he decided to go full time with it there is a letter i quote in the book where he's saying uh, where he says in so many words i'm scared you know what if the next book won't come i mean i what am i going to do with this but uh but he um but the next book came and the one after that and the one after that. So I guess the short version of that very long-winded, digressive um, response is that obviously it affected him. Um, I I didn't do enough deep research into the sort of uh, uh, into his life um To be able to answer authoritatively, I am quite sure that he enjoyed it. I'm sure that he enjoyed enjoyed being there. He was very much a he came out of the science fiction community, and he was a star within it. And uh, another anecdote that Delaney tells is that uh, he won. um, Zelazny won his first Hugo Award for his first full length novel. Uh, which was serialized in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction uh, and called And Call Me Conrad. And it was published under the title This Immortal. Uh, and he won the Hugo Award for it. He tied in a tie with Frank Herbert's Dune. All right. that And that tells you something right there. And uh, the way Delaney remembers it is that when they were introducing the author guests at the beginning of the convention, everybody got... Quite a bit of applause, and when they introduced Rogers last night, the applause just did not stop. You know, as Delaney put it, he went on and on and on. So he was very much a uh, again meteoric rise to fame. It's a cliche in this case; um, it happens uh, to be true. Um, and he uh, and, and he maintained uh the level of prominence, and as far as I can tell, that level of personal goodwill, um, it's all of his life, all of yeah. his career.
1: Well, if if I may, you know, a little a little anecdote about that goodwill is that. When I was a teenager, you know, I came to Zelazny through Amber and I was so taken by them that I wrote in the, in the mid eighties, I wrote him a letter of questions I had about the first five books and just the the plot twists and things like that. And I said, I'd also love, this is pre-internet, right? I said, I'd love to have a list of your books. And I sent it care of the science fiction book club, of which I was a member. And I just sent it off. And and all of a sudden in March of 1985, I received this handwritten letter from him telling me he had this really cool stationery a picture of the space shuttle on it, telling me that the, the next Amber books will be published soon and that this would be the start of a trilogy. Of course, it turned into another five books. And he included a list of all his books that were clearly typed on an electric typewriter line by line. And it was so kind. It was such a, he didn't have to return my letter. I was a kid who who had these questions about Corwin and, and Erica, things like that. And it was so cool. And I shared that PDF with you. And I re, your response to me was, this seems totally in line with his personality.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And um, I um, I am holding a printout of that uh, PDF. I just did that before we logged on, and yeah, um, one of the, uh, well, quick before I forget it because I'm old and I forget things. Um, uh, there is a study to be done about the impact of the science fiction book club on all of us, because that was really my source for getting into, uh, Zelazny. Um, but, um, yeah, in doing the book I did, a, I was able to get to, um, to have a look at some of Zelazny's papers. He has a significant collection of his papers are at Syracuse University and there's another collection of his papers at university of maryland baltimore county and in looking through the correspondence i was just flabbergasted at how often he would do just what he did for you um that somebody would write him out of nowhere oh when's the next book coming out or more likely earlier in his career oh I you know I really uh enjoyed um uh Lord of Light but I was wondering about this thing or even how do I get published you know what where are the keys to the kingdom what what's um how do I do with this and he would answer them
1: <laughs> yeah it's great he
2: would answer them sometimes cool yeah. yeah sometimes with um you know fa- fairly extensively and who has time to do that you know i (laughs) I mean i was just amazed you know he just really seemed to be uh you know there was just a kind of old school graciousness there that um uh you know and that was one expression of it is that if apparently and you know i don't i didn't have uh all of his um correspondence available but you know based on what i saw you know if you sent him a letter he would answer it and uh it, it was it was it was quite something so yeah when you sent uh, it does not surprise me at all that he took the time to to uh do that
1: yeah, I, I treasure that letter. So let, let's talk. Let's talk about the Amber books and get into those. So you know, so Zelazny wrote ten of these. It's two five book series, and these are these really took off. They got him a tremendous following. The first one, Nine Princes in Amber, is published in 1970. The last of the ten, Prince of Chaos, comes out in 1991. Now you note in the book that in 1980, Zelazny incorporated himself as the Amber Corporation. So he knew he knew these were the great great hits. He knew that this was these were doing. very... Very, very well for him. So without spoiling the plot twist and getting into all the intricacies, before we dive into the the issues of these books, can you tell the readers a little bit about what the Amber books are, like, you know, what, what they're about, that the rough, you know, you know, plot of the right. of the series
2: uh-huh. yeah well uh i don't think
1: uh, you have to worry about me spoiling plot twists
2: because there were so many of yeah. them um <laughs> i i i can't because it's been a and little good ones. while yeah. Good ones, too. it's been a little while since i have well, what you could tell everyone what is amber this. and what, what is yeah, amber into? yeah so oh no uh the, sure um uh, the basic conceit of the whole series is that Amber is the kind of perfect world, the originary world of which all other worlds are copies, including Earth. And the first book in the series what, that you mentioned, Nine Princes in Amber, which came out in 1970, um, opens with a guy waking up in a um, hospital with amnesia. And and one of the things that is very distinctive about the Amber books is that they are all told; they're narrated in the first person. And this is not, you know, if you've read even one of the Game of Thrones novels, you know, or anything like Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time or uh, any of the classic uh, fantasy series, uh, well, Lord of the Rings for that matter, you know, these are... Book that. Well, particularly with something with the, the more modern series, is that you've got multiple points of view. Here's the chapter. Not uh, 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 here's the chapter um, narrated by this guy. Here's the chapter narrated by that. That's from the point of view of that woman, and you you're bouncing back and forth. But the first five books of the Amber series are narrated by Corwin. And the second five are narrated by another member of the fam- the royal family of Amber, and the um and so if he wakes up on Shadow Earth, and then gradually rediscovers who he is, and the whole impetus of the series is Corwin. Coming to terms with his status in the royal family of Amber, of the warfare, often, pro, I mean, literal armies marching warfare among the various siblings within the family trying to control Amber. At the basis of it is the pattern which you have to walk uh, to solidify your status as a member of the royal family. And so it's all that, okay? It's all that. Uh, What makes it distinctive is that Corwin's voice kind of alternates, and this is something that, um, you know, was commented on a lot with Zelazny's work, is that there's almost, uh, it is an epic fantasy, and it does have that sort of approach to language in it. Uh, the second novel in the series, *The Guns of Avalon*, is uh, probably the most overtly Arthurian of the series. Um, but, and of course, there's some, um, you know, there's a there's a very uh, Camelot kind of uh, feel to uh, some of this. But um, uh, but there's also a hard boiled aspect to it. I mean Corwin is quite cynical, you know, Corwin is um uh you know there is um uh, there's a moment in one of the later books where Corwin it isn't quite as uh su- as um unnervingly sudden and funny, as in the first, as in Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember, where the guy uh, pulls out the sword and does all the moves and Indiana Jones just shoots him. Yeah, it isn't quite that abrupt, but it's sort of in the same territory. And the guy that Corwin dispatches says, ah, you don't have any honor. And Corwin's like, honor <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. what i you know i have got i got places to be you know get uh get out of my way, so there is that um aspect to it as well it 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 is um um i think that any it it and it put him you know as you said over the top it is a very inventive um series of books. It, there are, are people who think that the um, second um, the second five books uh, are maybe not quite up to what he did in the first five. There are those who really admire Nine Princes in Amber and wonder why he dragged it out for, for nine more volumes. Um, uh, I think that Nine Princes in Amber in particular is one of the really important works of american fantasy i I came to have a whole new appreciation of that book in particular when i was go when I was doing the rereading uh, I needed to do for the series they're often very funny uh they are uh, very energetic and they and people uh just i i, I, I what some of the writers I talked to. I wanted to be sure to talk to writers who didn't know Zelazny personally, writers of uh, later generations. So I talked to people like Max Gladstone and Elizabeth Bear and uh Laird Barron and uh I think particular and they um were um So you have these not only later generations of readers, but later generations of writers who really did come to uh, to, uh, Zelazny through the Amber series. And that's one of the things about his career and about trying to talk to people with about him to people who aren't already familiar with his work, because there is this massive body of the Amber Chronicles And there are Zelazny fans who adhere to that and really don't, um, aren't maybe that deeply familiar with his other work. Because as he was writing The Amber Chronicles, he was writing numerous standalone science fiction novels, often very, uh, through the 70s and into the 80s, often very, um, uh, quite formally uh, innovative and uh, never stopped writing short fiction. In fact, all of the awards in his later career were really for his short fiction um, that he got. His final standalone novel was a sort of um, horror fantasy called A Night at the Lonesome October that is narrated by Jack the Ripper's dog. And that's not a spoiler because you're told that within the first five paragraphs of the book but it is um you know so he was he just was capable uh, of doing these uh, uh, amazing things and the amber but the amber series is what um you know kind of uh, made his uh made both his fame and certainly his fortune i mean he 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 did very well uh with those books
1: You talk in your book about how, and I like how you do this, where you talk about how Zelazny found kind of the sweet spot between Tolkien and Raymond Chandler, and that you know there's Corey and Corwin, and that you know it, 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 the great thing about those books is you could hand somebody that didn't that they might say I don't like science fiction, I don't like fantasy, I don't, you could just hand somebody Nine Princes in Amber and say, well, just give this a shot. It's 175 pages long, and you, you it's like the big sleep, but all of a sudden it's the it's the metaphysical big sleep. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, absolutely! I think that, um, uh, in fact, as uh, as you well know, uh, there were people within the fantasy field who kind of had their doubts about the early Amber books. Yeah, claimed, Ursula K. Know, K. Le Guin said he didn't Ursula take K. his fantasy seriously. Ursula K. Le was right? saying yeah. he didn't take the materials of fantasy seriously um, enough. And uh, but 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 Selassie was always playing around with things. At um, his early science fiction, if he got pigeonholed before the Amber books, uh, it was because as a writer who adapted myth to science fiction. I mean, Lord of Light, Lord of Light, say, right? from the yeah. Hindu pantheon. Uh, a really wild novel he published uh, in the same era, called Creatures of Light and Darkness, is a reimagining of uh, Egyptian uh mythology and that there's a lot of that going on with his short fiction as well. And uh there were some people who uh were saying, well, myth is set. Myth is not science fiction. You know, science fiction is about change. But he was always really just, you know, playing around uh with it and he was playing around with the tropes of um the high fantasy. And uh, doing, I think, very innovative things with it. It wasn't absolutely unique. Uh, I didn't go into a lot of detail in my book, but there have been other studies of Selassie, uh, Theodore Kerlik, Jane Linskull, and, um, you know, they talk about the influences on Amber. And on the one hand, he and this is a perfect encapsulation, I think is the last me On the one hand, he was influenced uh, by um, uh, a, um, a an old pulp novel by the uh, legendary 40s uh, science fiction writer Henry Cutner, And he was also influenced by Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet. Uh, in terms of, uh, initial, he was initially going to do it from multiple points of view, but just got kind of caught up in uh, in Corwin's point of view. And of course, Michael Moorcock, there's and Fritz Leiber and and all of all of uh, of those guys. But yeah, I mean, and also you mentioned the page count of that. One thing people coming to the Amber series need to realize is that all ten Amber books are probably, in terms of total page count. About two to three volumes of any contemporary fantasy series. They are short novels. Uh, they are full-length novels, but they're short novels, which you know kind of adds to their appeal. I think
1: yeah. uh, you know. There's so you much did, dialogue. There's so dialogue-driven. They're
2: very dialogue. So me had he never. Um, well, his ba- His master. He his master's thesis was in compare his master's. Uh, degree was in comp lit but his specialty was elizabethan and jacobian theater and there is there's often a grand theatricality about him if you see if you read his work that i this may be getting a little too technical but it he doesn't often bury dialogue within narrative paragraphs that the dialogue is very clearly set aside and often like him, you know, going back to Hemingway, uh, um, unattributed and you really just have to sort of, uh, keep up with it a lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth, um, Yeah.
1: He likes to put people but, in a room and have them talk. And he and, does. Yeah, he he does, does that very much. Uh, and he does. Just like the, it's funny you said all the tropes of sci fi, but it, also the Amber books are great because they have all those tropes of the private eye novels, right? I mean, you know, the guy with the amnesia. Yeah, I thought of the big sleep just now, like the, the corrupt family. trying, oh, try, corrupt family. Trying to yeah. be, what does uh, Raymond Chandler say? Down these mean streets, a man Down. must go who is on himself oh, mean. Yeah. Like that's yeah. what Corbin tries to do. Right.
2: Well, I mean, I think no accident, be that the worlds that are copies of Amber are referred to as shadow world, Yeah, right. And of course, one of the um, um, things in the novel is that riding through shadow. Yeah. Uh, that. And this is it for the members of the royal family, you can uh, take a sh- get a shortcut to one of the shadow world, but you have to ride through shadow. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go on a hell ride. And then this is often represented in the books by Zelazny, Kind of uh, letting uh, letting it all hang out stylistically, and there'll be like a whole page of just purely descriptive writing, punctuated by ellipses. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so uh, he was always um, um, the uh, one of the things in Any Given Zelazny book, well, in a few of them in particular, is you can play spot the five hundred word sentence. You know, spot the two pa- spot the two page paragraph. He he was not uh he, he always um, almost always let you know let himself from time to time go on these kind of
1: have these lyrical
2: outbursts yeah Uh, and it's funny because they're
1: they're in the middle of these novels which are so perfectly and tightly plotted where where you know the the fun of them is keeping it's like reading john le Carre, where the fun is trying to keep up with who knows what at what time and i I was really doing that for this other guy and you got it all wrong and now so that's what's so fun is that it goes from that kind of like le Carre plot to all of a sudden you're reading leaves of grass or something
2: mm-hmm. oh yeah well it's funny that um one of the characters in one of his later standalone novels roadmark is a sentient copy of leaves of grass right so that's i right. think I'm, <laughs> i think i'm remembering that correctly that's right that's so, right so um uh, yes yeah, so so uh his last was um uh very well he was he was a a very even by the standards, you know. Science fiction writers do tend to often be kind of autodidacts, and they read a lot. Uh, they have a lot of uh, widely uh, dispersed knowledge. And uh, Zelazny, even by the standards of the field, just read uh, of, of voluminously and retained a lot of what he read. I mean, one of my favorite of his standalone novel uh, books really is uh, a book he published in the 1970s called My Name is Legion. That is three novellas about a private detective. So they're science fiction crime novels. And uh, they um, um they are, and they are are good examples of just what you were talking about that they can be very lyrical, but they're still uh, you know, this guy's trying to solve a mystery and um, this and the nameless narrator uh, who's um, uh, lost uh, in the data, uh, lost uh, who, who has kind of what today we would call uh, he's gone off the grid, but he still manages to have his, um, you know, do jobs for a detective agency.
1: Well, if we could before we veer into the end of his career, I just want to push the Amber stuff a little more. Cause I think I, I think it's interesting, is that so you mentioned riding through shadows. So for people not familiar with the Amber books, you said before, you know, Amber's the one perfect city, the one perfect world. But if you're a prince, if you're a member of the royal family, you can manipulate these kind of parallel realities and you can go into them. And so I wanna, you know, Roger Zelazny has a hit he he has a letter in your book. You quote him and he says, um there's something a bit lighter than my usual fare, but I think he's being a little modest there. I think the Amber books have a lot of big philosophical unsolved that is, but they're, they're really interesting issues. Right? So let's talk about that. The the big ideas of the Amber books, right? Right. Why, if you are a Prince of Amber or a member of the royal family, you can go live in a shadow wherever you want. You can go manipulate space time so that you are Elvis or you're a a writer or you are, um, you know, you're Jimmy Buffett hanging out on the beach or you're, you know, Napoleon. You could do whatever you want. So why are all these people fighting to control Amber, the real city?
2: Well, I think the short answer is it's good to be the king. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, I think that, um, uh, or at least it is for them. Uh, and I think that one of the big issues that Zelazny deals with in the series and particularly in the first five, well, actually in all of them is, uh, exactly that. I mean, why bother, you know, I mean, why do this? And there at one point, and I don't remember which book it's in, Corwin is reminiscing about when he was on shadow earth and like Paris in the twenties yeah, or something it was a great like time, that. Yeah. And it was like, that was great. You know, why, you know, I, I wish I could go back to that, but, um, but part of it, but one, there are things in the the concepts uh, within the series, um, and kind of, um, almost, um, floating on. I won't say under the surface, but uh, dealt with in very specific ways. I mean, if we're talking about shadow earths, we're talking about alternate worlds. We're talking about parallel worlds. We're talking about multiple levels of reality, right? So uh, that's all very much there. Uh, but But they're also talking about power. You're talking about power and the uses of power and the responsibilities of power. And uh, one of the, I'm trying to think of a non, now I am trying to think of a non-spoiler way to do this, but that Corwin along the way comes to some realizations that have him interrogating just what you were talking about. Do I want the throne of Amber? What is it worth? You know what is it worth to me? Do I really want to do this? And part of it is uh, motivated by, um, it it goes. I mean, in Nine Princes in Amber, you're going from curiosity, and a profound existential curiosity: Who am I? No, really, who am I? I have no idea who I am. And then once he discover, is led into the um, the Amber world. Is, is discovering that world, discovering how to use it, discovering his family, trying to work out how he feels about them, and then, based on some things that happened in that first book, trying to take revenge on members of his family. And then, as those first five books unfold, um, you discover this goes to the sort of uh, plot intricacies you were talking about, that, well, wasn't quite what it seemed, you know, there was more going on than maybe you initially realized, but I would say, you know, it's a part of it, It's just power. A part of it is uh, family. Uh, I mean, what is the appeal of game of Thrones? It's those families, you know, it's, um, it's not, um, and I don't, in terms of the actual fantasy world, of game of thrones uh at least being, and i'm not uh, i should say immediately uh, i did not watch much of the hbo series i read the first book and it's a terrific read you know you see what is coming from and i'm also old enough to remember when george martin was writing stories for science fiction magazines for nicola words so god bless him and the um but it's the families; it is the dynamics among the individuals, and uh, I think that Cor- that Corwin's desire to try to figure that out and to try to come to terms with it. Well, this is something I've got to. T- uh, this is something I've got to get a handle on, and, and I think, as you were implying, I mean, who wouldn't like to take a jaunt between worlds? Like that, who wouldn't like? And one thing we haven't mentioned is the Trumps, is the cards. This uh, tarot, essential tarot-ish deck that has the images of all of the members of the royal family of Amber, and that is the device by which they transport themselves. Those are their iPhones. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, those are their iPhones. That's the um, that's the you know beam me up
1: uh, uh, device
2: and you know who wouldn't who wouldn't enjoy enjoy
1: doing that and it's got all those things like you said about you know amber's like the, you know the the one to have the power of controlling amber because amber's the place of order right and the enemies of amber all come from this place called the courts of chaos and it's got I love what you said about families because in one of the early books i think it's the first one is um Corwin curses his brother, Eric, for something he did to him or he thinks he did to him. And then it starts this thing called the Black Road, which kind of remember the Black Road comes into amber and all of these demons come on it and things like that. And it, it it's you know, it's metaphorically about how once there's a rift in a family, it's very, very hard, you know, to get that to turn that black road around.
2: Right, right. And of course, in the uh second The second five books, it's again all about trying to deal with family and come to terms uh, with power. And um, in the second five books in particular, uh, to keep yourself from being run over by powerful people within your own family who want you to position yourself in a certain way and pushing back against that um that that's even more strong uh strongly because um uh that um but but all of the um um all of that the family dynamic in the interplay and also again with this uh, um amazingly uh enduring voice i won't even say consistent because as i discuss In the book, you know, there sometimes you can pick up an Amber book and on one page it may sort of read like this and another page it may sort of read like that. And that's, you know, deliberately done and also mirrors the fact that, um, you know, we're talking about two uh, different um, uh, worlds. And that goes back to even Lord of Light, because the central uh, figure in Lord of Light is on the one hand, he's the Lord of Light, but he's also Sam. Right. And so this kind of the continuing modulation between if I wanted to get really pretentious, I would call it the sacred or the profane. But, we, you know, we don't want to get pretentious. So, um, that, so I won't do that. But, yeah, there. It, it, and in case for people, I, I worry that um, anybody listening to this who is not immediately familiar or was not already seduced by the Chronicles of Amber is going to go, what? But as you can tell, listeners, there is a lot going on. And I would also urge people who might be interested in exploring Selassie's work that there's a lot of other work, too. There's all those um, early stories. There is a a, a book that was uh, published by a a small press a couple of years ago called uh, The Magic, that was essentially curated by Samuel R. Delaney, and it really gets all of Zelazny's early major stories um in one place and other uh novels, um uh the the um um the this immortal um, the uh the second novel The Dream Master is really, really interesting. It's an expansion of his novella He Who Shapes that won his first Nebula Award um there are a number of interesting books uh through the 70s in the 80s he wrote a book called eye of cat that deals with uh native american uh concerns and um the uh, and if anybody has heard me say Native American and remembers it a little while ago, I said Hindu pantheon, and also remembers and has been paying attention that Zelazny was this white guy from Euclid, Ohio, and you're starting to think cultural appropriation. Well, yeah. Question mark? I mean it is uh it that's one of the interesting things uh about Zelazny's work, uh is that he plays fast and loose with Hindu and uh Egyptian mythology. Uh Eye of Cat was pretty meticulously researched and as at least in my eyes uh, a very um uh respectful uh presentation uh of that particular material. Someone said of uh, Lord of Light that, you know, these days we might call it a cultural appropriation. In 1967, we might call it uh, earning points for even being aware that there are other religions in the world. And that was one of his motivating factors with that novel, was that nobody's ever really done anything with uh, the Hindu uh, pantheon, uh, with with that uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, to that extent. Uh, within science fiction, so yeah. Well, let's look. A lot about going the, on.
1: Yeah, there is. Let's let's talk about toward the end of his career. Let, let's finish up by talking about that. So, um, you know, you talk about his his Dilvish stories and his novel, The Changing Land, towards the end of your book in 1982. This collection came out called Dilvish the Damned, um, and you quote a letter from Zelazny in which he said, "Here's what he said quote To tell the truth." I invented that series because I find that sort of thing very easy to write, and I thought it would be useful to have such a thing for those occasions when I might need a story in a hurry. End quote. So you say people like Norman Spinrad and Neil Gaiman, they saw this output as a betrayal of his early promise, or at best going through the motions. So, you know, let's let's talk kind of about the end of his career and and you know, do you see any quote unquote betrayal of his early promise, or do you see any sense of him going through the motions? Or, you know, because when I read your book, part of me thought, well, sure, like he knew, like I'm very good at this, and that's fine, and I'll I'll take my I'll take stylistic chances, but I also know what people like and you know if people like this there's no no harm, uh-huh. no foul uh-huh.
2: um, yeah uh, in retrospect maybe betrayal was um, uh, a loaded word uh, for me uh, to use there but if you um, well put it this way um, there were um, one thing I quote in the book is that review if, if I can't remember, I think it was the fourth. Amber book. It was the third or the fourth Amber book. No, it was the fourth. And uh, by Alex and Corey Panshan, very well-known critics um, of the time, and uh, also science fiction writers. And they were of the school that, you know, they didn't have much truck with the Amber books. They really didn't care uh, for them all that much. And then, uh, but they really liked uh, this fourth book because they thought he had regained his moral compass or something along those lines and I'm probably misremembering and mis misparaphrasing there but at one point in the review which was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction they suddenly write Zelazny is back hooray hooray and I think that's very telling as to the level of just emotional investment, never mind artistic investment, that Zelazny's readers and other writers had in him. Uh, And it is, um, and when you think that the writer is not living up to these works that so rocked your world, then maybe you do feel uh, a certain sense of betrayal. Um, I I want I do say you mentioned Neil 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 Gaiman and uh, I think Gaiman the quote from Gaiman I found illuminating was that he felt that it's somewhere in the 1980s that Zelazny had and this is an exact quote lost his joy lost his joy and was doing things that were repetitive um, and kind of farming out things Zelazny did a lot of collaborative work in his later career, um, but, um, and uh, so uh, I can, if you hear that quote about the Dilvish series, you think, what, F- what a hack, you know, why, why why do that? But a couple of things about that, it's not like he spent the rest of his career writing Dilvish the Damned, which are very entertaining stories. I mean, they're very, um, they're certainly worth Reading, if if you like, if you want a dare I say more conventional approach to sword sorcery, kind of heroic fantasy, um, you know, there are books to look at, um, because at the same time he was doing those, he was writing, um, books, some of his books in the seventies. He wrote a very funny novel called Doorways in the Sand that was just this perfectly structured. Science fiction romp. he wrote a book called Bridge of Ashes that was uh a, incre- that was incredibly um interesting and innovative um he uh he did a collaborative novel with Philip k. dick in fact, I spent a whole other podcast talking with a bunch of Philip k. dick people about that novel de um He wrote a novella in the nineteen eighties called uh twenty four views of Mount Fuji by Hokusai that won him his final hugo award and um well and so he he was um he was always uh, you know doing that sort of thing, and the book I mentioned earlier, which was kind of the nicest surprise for me in doing the reading and rereading for this book because I had not been deeply familiar with The Night of the Lonesome October from my youthful reading. And I thought, well, this is just great. This is fabulous. This is his last, and he's so clearly having fun and be, having not only fun, but having really smart fun. Um, so um, I think that um, th- so, uh, that there's all of that going on Uh, At the same time. And also, um, when you say that uh, Zelazny was writing the Dilver stories because readers enjoyed them, um, I think that Zelazny was also writing uh, certain kinds of stories because he enjoyed them. Uh, This is a point that Jane Lindskull makes, uh, is that when people talk about all all the sword and sorcery stuff, the Delvish stories and the uh, other things he did, um, that uh, her assertion is that he wrote that stuff because he liked to read it, that he was an enthusiast for that kind of high fantasy uh, fiction. Again, going back to Michael Moorcock and Fritz Leiber, and all the way back to Tolkien, Robert E. Howard, and you know all of those guys. So, um, you know, he wrote um, he wanted the tension between his uh, ch- between his um, just deep knowledge of the arts of fiction and literature, and his but his. Uh, un, Always, this joy, as Gaiman said, in uh, in all of it as well, and his comfort with uh, the the um, approaches of genre fiction, with the materials of genre fiction, and and also, of course, the idea of his being a commercial uh, writer, and so and a man in the middle in the um, you know middle third, late middle third of the twentieth century. Uh, an American man who had a family to support. And, um, you know, you know, th- th- that was certainly a figure. And if there is a quote that I heard along the way that I didn't include in the book because I really was not able to source it or document it, but the that allegedly that Zelazny said of uh, the story 24 Views of Mount Fuji that that was a really good story. I'm very proud of it. It won me an award, and the last Amber book put a wing on my house. And, um, you know, there is, um, well, as I say the afterword to the book, that one maybe cannot help wishing, you know, longing for a world where something like that novella would be as remunerative as um, the next Amber book, or the ne- or um, the um, or uh,
1: any of the other uh, things he was doing later in his career. Well, you describe his his work as uh, just know in your answer. You gave a great reason of why people should be drawn to his work, and I hope people will after hearing this. But I love the phrase you just used called "smart fun," and I think that's that's a great way to describe the the work of Rogers Lasny and certainly a way to describe your book. So, you know, Brett, it's been great uh, talking to you today. And well, great. Yeah. I
2: really appreciate it. I'm very glad to uh, to do that. If I could add one uh, footnote uh, note, and um, that. Um, uh, I always want to claim uh, that for me, uh, th- the, the starting point for Roger Zelazny was when I read his breakthrough story, A Rose for Ecclesiastes. And um, you cannot read a story. like This is a story about a poet on Mars, and it is narrated by this arrogant young poet on mars and it you cannot read a story like that as a very young reader with sort of nascent literary ambitions and not have it impact you uh, and i think that Zalaz- i think that people come and this is not unique to zelazny but some people but you know i think that the people those of us who were impacted by zelazny were impacted very strongly um, I would hope that, uh, people would, uh, take, um, you know, people who maybe know and at least know in passing, oh, I know who Samuel L. R. is. I know who Ursula Gwynn is. I know actually a writer I should have mentioned earlier with the New Wave folk. Uh, I know, sort of know who Thomas M. Dish was. Uh, but, um, you know, that Celestine's work is, uh, is well worth considering. I wouldn't have spent, um, so so many, uh, so much of uh, my recent life, you know, getting this done. Um,
1: yeah, and it certainly is. And it, it was great to go th- to walk through his career with you as a guide, you know, offering more smart fun. And it's certainly, um, if, if, if people have maybe read one or two things by Zelazny, I've always wanted to read Lord of Light. This is a great, great book to motivate people to go back to his work, because it certainly did for me. So thanks for being on the show. And I encourage all our listeners to get a copy of the book, Rogers Zelazny. It's in paperback from the University of Illinois Press. It's a great read about a great writer. Thank you so much, Brett, for being on the show.
2: Oh, thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed it.